Hi everybody, my name is Pete Finn and this is the COVID-19 and Democracy podcast. On this week's episode, rather than have an interview um, with a single academic, we are looking back at some of the most interesting episodes focused on events in the UK over the last year of the podcast. The reason we're doing that is because earlier this month we reached both a year of the podcast being in operation and over 50 episodes which is pretty exciting i hope you will agree we never i never would have imagined that we would get to this point um, and it would still be a going concern a year later um, this is the first of two episodes so this episode focuses on events in the uk and the next episode will draw out some of the most interesting insights we have garnered for events beyond the uk's shorts um, so i hope you enjoy this episode and um look forward to more episodes in the future we've got episodes coming up on vaccines and food poverty for instance and we will also be returning to events in the borough which i live in in london which is ealing the first episode first snippet on this episode is with rachel clamp who is up at durham and is actually researching the plague rather than covid um, and she wrote a really interesting piece on fake news and comparisons with covid19 which is why we had her on and i thought it was a rather interesting base to start the journey um, chronologically on this episode so um, i hope you enjoy these snippets and um, thank you for listening um and so one thing that stood out in your kind of initial discussion there was just the skies and scale size, pardon me size and scale right so um correct me if I'm wrong you said that the initial wave of the black death caused the death of about a third of Europe's population so yes i mean so in terms of the size and scale of where we are today thankfully despite like the the horrific and tragically rising numbers of deaths we are not anywhere near that is it would that be fair to say in terms of like the scale of what we're dealing with now isn't on that scale as yet is that yes absolutely and i think um so trying to put big numbers into perspective is always really difficult trying to imagine a third of europe being wiped out is is really difficult and i think one of the things that sort of might almost help you put that into perspective um, just to realise how fatal this disease really was and um, that Keith Wrightson estimates in the 1636 outbreak of plague in Newcastle. So this is, this is it was a, a big town, but we're not talking, you know, the size, the size of London here, but he estimates that in that outbreak, which its peak was for probably about nine months, there was up to half of the city wiped out. And if you can just imagine half of your own town wow. perishing in the space of, of nine months, it, it, it doesn't even bear thinking sure. about really. So. so I guess, I mean, thankfully, we're, we're nowhere nowhere near that um, with yes. the pandemic. I suppose maybe then in that case, sorry, this wasn't in the questions I sent you, but it just came to mind now. I've just been <laughs> um, reading the book Pale Rider on the Spanish flu. Um, and I mean, maybe this at present the spanish flu is more comparable in terms of in terms of deaths caused than numbers yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah okay all right something else that was interesting in your article and i guess this is why like you know because the, the social side of a of of a pandemic is as interesting um and affects the pandemic the kind of epidemiological side of the pandemic to a certain extent um and so this idea and um, 
God, the idea of fake news, I mean, it means lots of things to lots of different people. And it's sort of a bit like that. You know, like Brexit means Brexit. It kind of means whatever you want it to mean, um, which is, I guess, why it captures the zeitgeist, right? It's used from the left, it's used from the right, it's used by people who clearly are putting out fake news under, <laughs> and, and people who aren't. And so I just wondered, um, is, is it, would it be possible to kind of project that idea backwards to help understand the plague or, or not? And if so, can we draw any tentative um, ideas with the present from that? I think we I think we can. I think it, it is a useful idea in many ways. Um, so early modern people might not have had the internet <laughs> to contend with, um, but they did certainly have their share of what you might call fake news. Um, and this sort of ranged from medicinal remedies accompanied by reviews which would swear that a particular potion or amulet had cured the plague for many individuals and um, to more sort of sinister reports like the ones which fueled the, the kind of attacks on certain ethnic and religious communities that, that we've just touched on earlier. Um, so yeah, news, news did travel quickly in this period, probably surprisingly quickly, and then as now, not all of it was um, sort of completely truthful. <laughs> um, and I think one thing sort of living through a pandemic has shown me is is how much we rely on, on accurate news. I myself know that I was certainly guilty, particularly in the early, earlier stages of the pandemic, of consuming far too much news coverage you know sort of almost verging on obsession i watched the news every day i wanted to know how it was progressing i wanted to know what the government were doing to to deal with it and i think a lot of people were were the same and um, and i think the risk is that when people are desperate for answers and they have an internet filled with unreliable sources um there is a very real risk that misinformation can spread sure yeah yeah and in one of the most regular contributors to the project over the last year and a half, both on the podcast and in other outputs, has been um, Robin Pettit, who is an expert in UK politics and was for a long time my colleague at Kingston University. And in this clip recorded um, in, what well, I think was the first episode actually of the podcast, Robin talks really interestingly about um, the leadership of Boris Johnson things that um, you've written about in, in your chapter on the UK was that um, part of this reluctance might relate to um, sort of Boris Johnson's own reluctance to put restrictions on people which I thought was a really interesting way of framing it just as not saying that it's all his completely Boris Johnson's fault right but his own personality has influenced the UK government's. It's I mean in any country the national the style of the national leadership is going to have a huge impact on how it responds to any crisis. And it's, that's particularly so in the case of the UK, where a lot of power is centralized in London and in the government. Because Boris Johnson has an over, a, a significant overall majority in parliament, he doesn't have to negotiate with any other political parties in parliament. He does have to negotiate with local government, especially in the devolved assemblies in Scotland and Wales, because they do their own thing. But it does mean that the prime minister at any given time, if they have a majority, 
do have an awful lot of control. So they do set the scene and the tone a lot. And mm -hmm. Boris Johnson has been someone who throughout his life um, has always been reluctant to follow rules and to stick to conventions. Um, and that does seem to play into his political style as well, because he's reluctant as a personality to follow conventions and follow rules set by other people. There's also a reluctance to try and impose rules on others. Um, and something like a national lockdown is, goes very much against the grain of the kind of politician that Boris Johnson is. Uh, to make an, a, a central government decision to lock the economy down is, doesn't sit well with the British Conservative Party as such, but especially not well with someone like Boris Johnson, who doesn't like the idea of rules. Um, we also see it in him not really taking this particularly seriously to start with. So even at a time when medical professionals were encouraging people to wash their hands as often as possible, to not shake hands, to be careful about it mingling, he very proudly stated that on, on, a, on a visit to a hospital, he shook everybody's hand, as he said. He said something along the lines of, I'm sure you'll be glad to know that I visited this hospital and I shook everybody's hand at a time when the medical advice was the opposite. So when you have that juxtaposition between rules being advised, the people are being advised to follow certain rules, and then the prime minister boldly states that he's not following them himself. That creates an... It's a huge problematic... Um, it, in terms of the signaling, it's, it models, it muddies the water. When you have a situation like a pandemic, you need clarity. You need clear messages. This is what we're doing. This is what you shouldn't be doing. And then when you have the prime minister saying, ah, don't worry about it. It's fine. That becomes a problem. Yeah. Another regular contributor to the project has been David Green of the University of Law. And we've just actually published a briefing paper from David on the English and Welsh justice system over the last year and a half, in which he is quite clear that though there have been issues evolving from the pandemic, the problems that the English and Welsh justice system has suffered have evolved from um, pre-existing issues within that system. And um, on an episode back in the early spring, um, we discussed some of those issues. And in this um, segment of that interview, David talks about so-called Nightingale Courts. So in terms of um, the next thing I just wanted to touch on, and so the name of this, a part of this will be familiar to, because it's got uh, it's got a, a partly um, the same name as the extra NHS um, facilities that have been built up over the last year or so. Um, so I just wanted to talk, if you could talk a little bit to what a Nightingale Court is um, and why kind of, I suppose, thinking about like, access to justice and um, the, like, the broader citizenry, why should the average person care about what a Nightingale Court is um, and how it operates? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that, actually, this this use of the word nightingale, because, um, you know, some people may say 
that there's a certain degree of cynicism in calling these courts nightingale courts in the same way that we have nightingale hospitals, um, because it clearly draws the link in, in uh, members of the public's minds between the NHS and the justice system. And, and it clearly, or seems to, put them on a par with one another. Um, so on one hand, the language chosen does that, but on the other hand, going back to what I was saying previously, you know, we, we obviously haven't had a situation where half of all NHS hospitals have closed over the last 10 years or where a quarter of all doctors have left doing NHS work and have either retired completely or gone to do um, only private work. And if we had had that situation, there would have been, you know, a massive outcry well before this stage. So it's interesting that that has happened in the criminal justice system really quite quietly and away from the attention of, of very much more than the specialist legal press. Um, and yet when it comes to these Nightingale courts, the government has chosen that word Nightingale to, to apply to them. Um, so yeah, I find the use of the language quite interesting from a political perspective. Um, but yeah, I mean, your question was, what are Nightingale courts? Nightingale courts are other space that has been found in which Crown Courts can um, hear cases um, where, um, where there isn't enough capacity at the moment in the existing Crown Court estate. So if you've got a Crown Court building where three courtrooms are now having to be taken up to hear a trial, if you can find space elsewhere, then, um, then obviously you can increase capacity in the system. Um, so to give you some idea, at the moment there are seven what I would call true Nightingale courts across England and Wales. So they are spaces that aren't court buildings that are now being used for this purpose. And then there are six other court buildings that weren't previously Crown Courts that are now being used for Crown Court work. So in total, 13 buildings, and each of them will have a number of courtrooms inside them um, to, to hear these cases. So um, some nice examples. Um, uh, Huntingdon Magistrates Court in, uh, in Huntingdon in Cambridgeshire is uh, now a Nightingale Court in that it wasn't a Crown Court and now it's hearing Crown Court cases. The Lowry Theatre in Salford uh, near Manchester is, um, is uh, now a Nightingale Court. Um, and uh, Simon Sester Courthouse, which was actually one of the courthouses closed back in 2012, has now been reopened in order to become um, a Nightingale Court. So they are extra spaces um, for uh, these cases to be heard in. Okay, so that's really interesting. So, in effect, a court that was closed has had to be reopened. Um, okay, that, thank you. Very yeah, much. there's 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 a nice. Well, I'd say nice. I suppose it's only nice if you have a dark sense of irony. But there yeah. is definitely a nice irony in the fact that we've cut the court so much, and now we're having to reopen those courts. And obviously, if we're reopening it eight or nine years later, it means that the government hasn't been able to achieve its um, agenda, which was to sell off these buildings to generate money for the system. Um, and if eight or nine years later, it hasn't been sold off, then, then that, you know, nothing has, a positive has come out of that, that whole process in that case, other than that now we do have a building that we can dust down and reopen as a court building once more. In this next snippet, Ariana Giovannini, who is at De Montfort University, um, discusses some of the problems that arose during the pandemic, especially in the early stages, 
as we were discussing this last uh, in March of 2021. So during the first year of the pandemic, Ariana is discussing. Um, she did, highlights issues that arose from the over-centralisation of power within um, the UK state and how this might have fed into problems during the pandemic. Uh, and so how has this centralisation affected the response uh, with relation to COVID-19? How has that fed into the last year? Well, I think that uh, there's no doubt that we've learned uh, the hard way, if you like, through the pandemic, what's the problem uh, with over-centralization. And in a sense, the COVID crisis has taken the challenge of over-centralization to a whole new level, uh, laying bare the failings of our governance, over-centralized system of governance. Um, put simply, the depth and spread of power, decision-making points, collaboration, resources, and capacities. These are crucial things in determining uh, the, effective, the effectiveness of policy, but also political uh, choices and responses, especially in a time of uh, crisis. So since the start of the pandemic, um, uh, Westminster has almost instinctively entered in a sort of top-down command and control uh, mode, recentralized most decision making in the face also even even though it was very clear that there were very stark regional differences in the spread of the covid-19 um, in the spread of covid-19 of, of coronavirus and also without making any use of and often uh, ostracizing devolved and local government institutions uh, in england and so the result of this was really a kind of a one size fits all uh, sort of approaches that were privileged by the government leading to kind of nationwide place-blind policy decisions taken by the center with very limited local um, uh, consultation. And this approach has also gone hand in hand, especially in England, with further withdrawal of uh, financial support for uh, local government. Uh, and this comes on top of a decade of austerity. So it's easy to see what's the problem that. And but there, but but what is interesting is that um, even though there was like a kind of a very decisive approach from the center, these kind of central responses to the crisis have been very poor and often uh, contradictory. Uh, decisions imposed by the center on local authorities have often had negative effects on local communities. And for example, if we look back at, um, at the period from the start uh, of the crisis, uh, we can recall the polling management or, and distribution of uh, personal protective equip equipment, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, and the continued delays in the, in the sharing of uh, data on infection rates. Then initially central government promised that local authority could spend whatever it takes to kind of tackle the, 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 the uh, help tackle the, the, the crisis on the ground, but those promises were quickly then uh, withdrawn. And also the management of local lockdowns was very problematic. And if we think of what happened in Leicester, for example, that's really a case in point in the sense that you might remember that a listener might remember that during the summer the, 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 uh, the, um, the mayor of uh, Leicester was actually told via uh, a speech in, uh, in parliament uh, um, by the health secretary that he, the city that he governs was going into a local lockdown. He had no previous knowledge of that. So that gives you a sense of how centralized we are and what is the problem with that. If a mayor doesn't know that 
this city is actually going to go in lockdown in a matter of hours. Well, how can they help manage the, the, the crisis on the ground? It's not because they don't have the tools or the capacity to do so, but there is really a disconnect that leads to kind of flawed policy uh, um, uh, responses. In this snippet, James Mitchell, who is a professor of public policy at Edinburgh University, provides some really interesting context and discussions about why what Ariana was discussing um, with relation to devolution matters, um, with relate, particularly with relation to events in Scotland. But I think his point probably holds elsewhere in the UK, both across the nations and at a regional level as well. Um, and actually, if I remember correctly, it was actually James who put me onto Ariana's work. So much thanks to James for that. And I hope this um, snippet, which touches on what he calls the penury of devolution, and then also some of the effects of that, especially with relation to mental health and culture. Um, hope this provides some interesting context for you to what Ariana was talking about. Um, back um, in the piece that I was referring to earlier, um, when discussing Scotland and um, kind of the, the granular level, you said you wrote of a penury of devolution in Scotland, which I think is a really great phrase. I just wondered if you could expand a bit for listeners and what yeah. you meant by that and whether it still, does it still hold? That... Yeah, I, I think I would distinguish, if we're going to devolve, and I'm all in favour of devolving to local communities and to local government um, and indeed to Edinburgh, but keep on keeping it coming down into communities. We want to devolve power. And by that, I mean, not comp just competencies and responsibilities. We've got to be able to do something. So in our local communities, instead of saying, right, you're going to be responsible now for say education or whatever else, people have got to be empowered to be able to do something. At the moment, I think we get this devolution of penury, as I would call it, where you're saying, we're dumping the problem on you. You've got this responsibility, get on with it, but we're not going to give you the power in a sense, we're not going to give you the resources to do anything about it. And I think across the whole of the UK, that's what we've seen over many, many years. The central governments have said to local governments, as this is true in England as it is in Scotland, um, right, you are responsible for X, Y, and Z. You've got to deliver this, but we're going to cut your grant. But you've still <laughs> got to deliver it. That's the devolution penury. That's saying, right, we're dumping the problem on you, the responsibility, but without the power that needs to go with it to be able to do something and I think sometimes we confuse and conflate responsibility and power and so it's certainly the case that local authorities have a great deal of responsibility I don't think they've got the power and they certainly don't have the financial power the fiscal powers that they require and that includes grants I mean across Britain what we are seeing is uh, we've seen cuts in public expenditure but local authorities are really suffering more more than others um, but it's not that they're having any of their uh, responsibilities or competencies taken away from them. They're still expected to, do, to deliver. And of course, what happens then, as we're seeing, is that some of the, the responsibilities which in law they must deliver, such as schooling and such like, are protected as best as possible. But other matters, which are vitally important, including around culture, leisure and recreation, which I think are vitally important, and I'll say why in a moment, um, are cut because they, you know, they're not statutorily obliged to deliver these. But why do I think culture and leisure and recreation are important? Because actually these are health matters. If you want to have a quality 
health, a healthy population, you need to have swimming pools, sports facilities, and we need to encourage people to use them. It will help their physical health and it helps their mental health. And I think as we're coming out of this pandemic, what we're going to see is that a major legacy in terms of health, a major problem in terms of health, both in terms of physical, but particularly mental health. A lot of the problems that have been building up in our communities amongst our citizens are going to become more and more evident as we come out of this. So the pressure, I think, on our mental health services will be intense. So we've got to find ways of, of getting out of this. And I do warn governments that, you know, there may come a day when we can say everybody's back at school, everybody's back at work, and we've, we've moved on. We will not have moved on. There's going to be a massive legacy, a public health legacy in particular, that will need to be addressed and it's going to cost us money and it's going to cost us time. So that, I think, is one of the things that I worry about as we move forward. And, and formally, when we move out of this pandemic, we're still going to have that, this, this rather worrying legacy. This next segment features Dr Annie Hughes, who is the head of the Learning and Teaching Enhancement Centre at Kingston University. Karen Kondo, who is the head teacher of West Acton Primary School in West London, and Associate Professor Radu Shimpoes, who is the head of politics at Kingston University. And this snippet comes from a roundtable episode that we did on education back in the early spring. And each of the guests are talking about issues that have arisen within the UK education sector. Um, during the pandemic. Now I should just say there are some issues with the sound on this particular episode um, in that it's a lot quieter than other episodes so apologies for that but hopefully the insights from Annie, Karen and Radu are worth turning up your um, volume for. In terms, of the, um, in terms of the biggest challenges that has been faced across the last year as we move to kind of the, the anniversary of the pandemic um, just from our discussions I've sort of uh, summarised that I think we could probably some, uh, put them under the following headings and then we can see what you guys think of what I've summarised so far. So inequality um, and whether that comes from class, gender, race, I mean that you know there's various intersections in that regard but that in inequalities um, have played a big part in those challenges. Um, Brexit as a sort of side issue that everyone's had to bear in mind in their decisions while also in the medium and longer term while also trying to manage great structural challenges in the short term and then I guess linked to the first is just access or the ability to consistently access the technology needed to engage. Um, Annie, what, um, from your uh, understanding of things would, would they be some of the biggest challenges and would you add anything else? I mean, certainly the mass to kind of the, the move to, to mass online digital delivery has been a, has been a challenge. Um, and as uh, you've you've, um, you've rightly described, you know, that staff have had a, a very steep learning curve um, and have absolutely risen to the occasion. I mean, they really have. And I like your description of of um, your students being sympathetic to your fallibility. I think actually um, one of the key things that has come out of this is that education is about relationships you know and good education is about strong and, and supportive relationships and I, I really hope we, we take that forward as you know as, as we move um, into the new normal um, recognizing that you know we're not just delivering content but we're, we're, we're building relationships with our students um, 
I think the issue of, of inequality is absolutely crucial. I think that's that's really important. We we knew already that students were trying to kind of study and and um, um, develop their learning on on smartphones. You know that many didn't have access to uh, uh, technology that we perhaps would would take for granted. Um, and I and I hope that that then becomes a a key issue as, as we go forward because I think that digital divide is really important and it's not yes as Radu said it's not just about hardware it's about the connectivity and without connectivity you can have you know whatever super duper hardware in the world it's not going to help so um, I think yeah I, I think for me when you asked the question that I think you've captured that it was about the, the move that move to digital delivery the the digital inclusion piece the digital divide whatever you want to to um uh to, to capture that and, that and that's not just about technology it's also about suitable study spaces as well you know and students having to try and find spaces to um to study and i guess that's karen will say more about that in the primary um, sector but i'm uh, you know that's also an issue um has been an issue and yeah the third challenge around the kind of maintaining the learning communities you know and the relationship piece i think those are the the three for me so you you, you know you've, you've you've captured those in in what you were saying Okay, great. I like that. What you opened with education is about relationships. That might that might end up being the uh, name of the podcast. <laughs> I like that. That's a it cap captured something quite special there. Um, Karen, um, did you have anything, uh, any any reflections or thoughts on on the challenges over the last year? Or yes, um, thank you. Um, so I agree with yourself and um, what you identified. But just to add into that, and I think it's already been touched upon a bit when you mentioned about. Um, the sort of stereotypical idea of university students and how it actually is in reality in Kingston. So that was very real for us, in our, particularly in our primary school, um, but also in probably lots of other primary schools. A lot of the guidance that was given was probably based on like a one-form entry school um, with a lot of extra space, for example, and things like that. So um, it was just a lack of understanding that actually every school has different buildings, different resources, um, you know, I was very lucky with my staff, but there are schools where actually a lot of their staff may have been clinically extremely vulnerable and not able to go in. So just that um, from the people making the decisions, the actual lack of understanding of what it is in reality um, is, is happening in schools. And it just felt that um, sometimes people in the schools who would know what, if that would be practical, if that would work, they weren't consulted or, or views weren't given. And then, um, as Annie said about the technology, but for us, add on to that, you know, I can give a five-year-old or three-year-old, a seven-year-old a laptop, you know, and it was great we were given those. But then that um, child has still got to be able to come and collect the laptop, go home, plug it in, connect it to the Wi-Fi, um, you know, be able to mute, unmute themselves, log on to a Teams wall, all those things that we as adults find challenging. And if you are a parent um, and you've got three or four children like this and you're trying to work, um, so it was, we can have the great broadband connection, we can give out the extra devices, but there's, um, you know, just wasn't enough of the parents to go around at home really to give their children all the support that they wanted to. And then this just added extra pressures on children children and families as well so just an extra layer when you bring it down to primary school I think okay brilliant thanks really really, really useful and insightful thanks Karen and Radu there is one particular issue that I would I would, add, I would like to add to the list uh, because I see um, and I'm, I'm not going to try to rank them in order of, uh, of importance 
but I see as very, very important um, myself, and that's the issue of mental health. Uh, and I think what, again, this is not a novel issue. This is a concern and a challenge that has that had existed before the pandemic. It's just that it uh, it was made a lot worse by the, the context, by the developments over the last year, uh, year and a bit. And uh, this this raises very, very serious concerns uh, as far as I'm, you know, as far as I can see it, in terms of how to uh, you know, how sort of carry out some sort of damage control um, process now, but also how this is taken further. Uh, in the future, when we would hopefully at some point emerge out of uh, out of this context. This next segment is from Grace Cransart, who is a member of the Labour Party in Ealing Borough and ran in local elections in the Hanger Hill Ward in Ealing last May. And this interview, this snippet comes from a series of interviews I did with candidates in that election. And in this snippet, Grace is talking about what the phrase build back better means to her. Um, and so um, there's this phrase that gets used time and time again um, by by the government. I mean, you see these phrases like, you know, just before the pandemic, around, around the time of the election, it was all about kind of levelling up and that's kind of still in the background. And then since last summer, there's been this idea, this narrative from the government that um, we need to build back better. Um, and mm -hmm. so if you were to kind of surmise what you feel that means, you know, do you have an idea what that phrase means to you and how important would kind of local government um, be be to doing that, to building back better? It's interesting you should ask that, that uh, question because about three weeks ago, um, I run this project called WAPI, which stands for Writing, Acting, Publishing Project for Youngsters, and it empowers young people to be in control of what they say and to be confident in speaking out in terms of the arts, but it kind of also uh, um, cuts across um, sort of like other areas so it goes into education we can cut power young people to interview high profile personalities and you know just make, make them leaders so they may even think in the future of doing something like campaigning and political work who knows i think there's a thin line between creativity and politics anyway so um because we are because of the lockdown wapi hasn't been able to engage with our youngsters in person as we would like to so we've we do things online called Lockdown Life. And that has meant that we've invited different individuals to come into Lockdown Life. Jamel Edwards, a, t a local entrepreneur and TV, uh, so, um, he's, he's set up STV uh, music channel. And then um, we've had uh, writers, we've had musicians. And recently, about a month ago, we had my son who works with Nick, Nick Newman, who has an organization called You Build. It's a You Build a, a, a architectural company. And he used the concept of building back better. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, so, it came, very... so they, yeah, three architects came into WAPI to talk with our youngsters. And I said, what do you mean by 
building back better. And he says that it's building sustainably in such a way you're using the, the, the natural environments and you're giving back to the community, which is going to be accessible for them. So you're building, so it's like building these affordable homes, affordable, uh, any structures using some kind of construction design and you're doing it in a way which is also green and, and, and environmentally friendly. But the actual concept itself, I understand, has been borrowed by the UN. And I did, I had to do a bit of research. So it's a strategy aimed at reducing the risk of, to the people, of nations and communities in the wake of future disasters and shocks. So it's a kind of recovery approach. And you know what? The problem is we've had austerity for the past 12 years. And the government, as far as I'm concerned, has underinvested in the health service. We've had Ealing Hospital. We've had to campaign to save it. As I said to you, and thankfully at the moment it's saved, but it's still at risk. We have had uh, the nurses and uh, those who are at the front line saving our lives. What, they've been awarded a 1% pay cut, even though Boris Johnson talks about leveling up. We've got teachers working their backsides off, you know. We have libraries that were in danger of being cut because of lack of funding. Police also have had their budget cut. So one of the issues, certainly in relation to Hanger Hill is, and, and all our areas, is high crime, opportunist crime, even if it's gone down within the lockdown, we still have opportunist crime. People that will take advantage. So when you talk about recovery, you've got to put a lot more in when you've been starving us of these public resources to begin with. Sticking with Ealing Borough. The next snippet is from a member of another branch of a national political party, which is the Green Party. And it's a snippet with Neil Reynolds of the Green Party. And Neil is running in um, a by-election in Hanwell, or not a by-election, pardon me, running for a seat on the local council in Hanwell in the elections next year in Ealing. And in this snippet, Neil, I asked Neil to think talk about whether or not the debates that have, well, I mean, raged might be an overused term, but raged they have in Ealing over the last year um, with relation to the introduction of low traffic neighbourhoods as part of attempts to manage traffic and people avoiding um, public transport in the borough um, as a result of the pandemic. And so this is um, Neil's response. Just before we... Um before we wrap up, I just um, one final question, and I just wondered: Do you think that the, so? Another interesting facet of this debate is: It feels to me, at least, like these might this debate foreshadows, and is probably minuscule in comparison to the debates that we're all going to have to have over the next ten years, twenty years, fifty years. Right? Like my kids, kids will probably be dealing with this these issues. Um, when I'm long gone, um, I, it feels like they foreshadow debates around climate change. Um, and so, are there it, like do you do you think that's true and why? And then are there kind of policy learning points that we can take away from this? I guess uh, we start with Neil first. 
It absolutely does. Um, I, I think um, one of the factors we're, we're, we're going to face as we try and tackle climate change is at the very best, our consumption will have to radically alter. At times, our consumption will probably have to reduce in order to hit these targets. Um, you know, again, sort of the, the, the government's wanting to be neutral by 2050. Ealing Council is suggesting it wants to be neutral by, by, by 2030. Well, to be neutral, 20% of its transport target is road usage. Okay, 20% of, of, of Ealing's carbon emissions are road usage. And it's one of the things that a council has quite a degree of control over because they are responsible for, for, for highways and, and, and transport to an extent. Um, it's essentially, you, you will not be able to do this by simply tempting people out of their cars with goodies at some point or, or road haulage out. You know, I mean, one of the things in the LTN was uh, we discovered that you, you actually were getting more and more deliveries by bike. As the scheme went on, there was there were adaptions, so it, it's possible, and LTNs did seem to help a bit with that in in, in our local area. Although again, anecdotally, but um, essentially the, the the bullet is going to have to be bitten at some point, and political leadership will have to be shown. And sometimes, I mean, the, the slogan that's been used uh, in Ealing is, is that you have to take people have to take people with you, and and to some extent, of course, that's ideally what you must do, and you have to be open and and consult and, and provide people with that. I would say that in terms of the debate is so often, do we want to do this or not? And the answer is, this is where we have to go. Here are the realistic alternatives, road pricing, um, changing the way that we deliver things, private car usage. How are we going to reduce all of these things and our impact? You have option A, B or C, one of which can be LTNs. But too often it's provided as, shall we do it or shall we not? So it's not so much taking people with you as going nowhere fast. Okay, so it's either or rather than a spectrum, right? Is that... Yeah, is like and, a... and, and it has to be whatever the policy option is that it requires us to get to this point. So we can choose the way in which we get there, but the, where we're going is not negotiable. And that, that takes political leadership, really. Okay. In the next snippet, Sophie Hill, who is a PhD student at Harvard, and discussed with us... Um, cronyism and or what's sometimes called chumocracy um, within UK politics and did so with relation to the pandemic and in this snippet um, Sophie explores how cronyism has become um, enmeshed in many ways with discussions of the pandemic and procurement within UK politics over the last year and a half. So turning to the pandemic, um, how did discussions of cronyism evolve early on in the pandemic? I mean, I suppose, because the, the, I guess the argument that the government used continually um, is, you know, they were faced with a national emergency, which they were. Um, we can talk about how they dealt with the early stages of that, I suppose, which is like a related conversation. But I mean, they were faced with this uh, emergency was there much discussion early on about kind of cronyism or when when and then if there wasn't then when did it start to become a feature yeah i think it was a gradual trickle of stories at first um and quite noticeably a lot of 
those stories were coming not from the big broadcasters or big newspapers, but from sort of smaller kind of pro-democracy, pro-transparency outlets like Byland Times or Open Democracy, um, who were just scrutinizing the contracts as they were released by the government. Um, and I think as early as April last year, there were um, a number of concerns about politically connected firms winning big contracts. Uh, one early example was Clipper Logistics, um, which won a large contract. Um, Clipper Logistics is run by Stephen Parkin, who um, has given like, I think over 700,000 um, pounds to the Tories in the last few years. Um, that's enough thousand. to, uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> that was enough to get him an invite to the leaders group, which is, you know, the, the VIP dinner club for the, the biggest Tory donors where, you know, you get to meet with the PM and other senior officials on a sort of regular basis. So, you know, there, there was already, I think, some clear indications um of these sorts of conflicts of interest um but it took a while for that story to kind of gain momentum and i think perhaps reasonably a lot of the media was maybe reluctant to sort of accuse the government of cronyism in those early sure. stages yeah, yeah. when it was very difficult to understand you know is this good value for money i mean the price of every item of ppe doubled tripled quadrupled you know in that period so there was a lot of um, um, difficulty in really assessing what the what the benchmark should be, and I think it was when we got to the summer that things really started kind of potting up. Um, in large part, I think because of the Good Law Project, which is this um, kind of campaign group that uses the courts to um, um, try and make the government more transparent. Um, and they started taking legal action against the government over um, a number of contracts. Um, the kind of most egregious ones uh, were cases like Pest Fix, which was um, a pest control company that I think on paper had assets of worth about 18 grand. Um, and it won a government contract worth 108 million pounds. So. <laughs> Probably didn't have the uh, logistics in place to manage that. <laughs> right. I mean, these are things that just on paper are going to raise a lot of red flags. Um, and, you know, Ayanda Capital was another case that got a lot of publicity over the summer. This was um, uh, a case of um, Andrew Mills, who was an advisor to Liz Trust, acting as a sort of middleman using this investment firm domiciled in a tax haven to somehow supply medical masks to the NHS, uh, which already sounds pretty sketchy, but was then compounded by the fact that 50 million of the masks they supplied were not up to the right standards. I think they had ear loops rather than the kind of head, head loop. Um, so they were never used. So I think at that point, the consequences of, you know, potential cronyism were starting to look very apparent, right? Um, yes, the government needs to get PPE, but if it's paying exorbitant prices and if it's buying equipment that isn't up to the right standards, this is just a massive waste of taxpayer money. Um, and I think that those kind of stories really culminated um, in the National Audit Office report that came out in November. 
uh, which was the first kind of official review of how that process worked. And I think the key revelation from that report was that there was a VIP channel for firms with political connections. So if you could get an MP or um, a public official or a peer to kind of nominate you to go into this channel, you were fast tracked. And we saw many more firms who had those connections winning contracts compared to those who didn't. Um, and we've got some more insight into sort of how that unfolded, I think partly because of these ongoing um, legal battles. Um, so I think we've seen emails where officials were sort of saying, we're, we're drowning in these VIP requests. Um, they just don't have the right certification. They don't pass due diligence. Um, and I think, <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and this is a huge problem because, you know, it's, it's institutionalized cronyism, right? It's, it was actually designed to give um, our, our public officials a huge amount of um, say into which firms win contracts where there's not really, I mean, to me, there's not really any obvious reason why an MP is a good judge of whether this manufacturer can produce the right type of medical equipment. I mean, they don't have that type of expertise in medical equipment, in logistics, in anything. So it's really hard to see what the benefit of that system was. And conversely, it's very easy to see what the potential problems are. Plowing similar ground, this snippet from an interview with Elizabeth David Barrett of the University of Sussex, who is the director of the Centre for the Study of Corruption, um, lays out numerous ways in which corruption has been an issue in UK politics over the course of the pandemic. Now, Sophie was talking in May, and so uh, whereas Elizabeth was talking in September, so the picture that Elizabeth was able to paint um, was somewhat um, fleshed out as a result of some great work being done by journalists and academics and um, parliamentarians over the summer in the UK. Okay, um, very, very well, well laid out. Um, and so turning to the pandemic, how has corruption been an issue over the last, I mean, we're a year and a half in now, so certainly mm -hmm. there's still, like, think, things are coming in into clarity in, in some ways, especially from the early stages, and um, will continue to um, over the, the coming years. But how, uh, where we are at this point, how, how much of an issue has it been? Yeah, so there are a few different areas where it's been an issue. Um, the most obvious one and the one that's got most coverage is in public procurement. So clearly, you know, when a pandemic happens, it's an emergency situation. Governments need to buy a lot of stuff that they didn't expect to have to buy, and they need to buy it fairly quickly. So this was really clear with personal protective equipment, PPE, masks, and, and that kind of thing for healthcare workers. Um, and public procurement is usually built on a whole system that it should be open and competitive. You basically say, we need to buy this and you invite companies to bid. You give them plenty of time to put together their, their bid and then you select the one that's the best value for money. Now, in a, an emergency situation, there's not enough time to go through the whole process. Um, and, and so what you saw is that a lot of procurement and a huge amount of public money was spent on things like PPE without going through those normal competitive processes. Now, some of that, I think, is understandable. Um, 
but some of it looks almost like it was really not necessary to do it in those emergency conditions and and therefore you have to ask questions about you know why was that method chosen and also even within the emergency conditions it's possible to do some checks and due diligence um, and and that doesn't seem to have been done in many cases so it seems that instead the UK government actually created this VIP lane um, in procurement where they were channeling in people who they had contacts with and um, they seemed to get beneficial um, access and were more likely to get contracts than other people. So procurement is a, a big issue where there's been a, a lot of um, potential corruption. You know, it's difficult often to find exact evidence of corruption, but there's certainly a number of um, risk factors. And in fact, uh, TI, Transparency International, did a, a good report earlier this year where they looked at these red flags or risks of corruption, and they found that about 20% of COVID contracts in the period of February to November 2020 had at least one of those red flags um, for corruption. Uh, so procurement's one area. Another thing is the COVID relief. Um, so particularly loans um, that small businesses were able to access um, during the COVID. We don't know that this is necessarily corruption as opposed to fraud, but there definitely seems to have been huge fraud in terms of people accessing those loans when they didn't really meet the criteria, sometimes you know, setting up um, companies specifically for the purpose. And, and that's large amounts of money and, um, you know, really wasted money. And again, something where you think, you know, this could have been um, done better. And then you've seen some small cases around corruption around vaccines. So obviously that was a, a, a good that was very much in demand. Lots of people wanted to get hold of vaccines, especially at the beginning. And sometimes there were some stories around um, vaccines being allocated according to um, favoritism rather than according to the right criteria set by the NHS. And also things around you know, leftover vaccines and how they were allocated. And does that potentially create an incentive to make sure you've got some leftovers um, if you can then um, use those in certain ways that might benefit or favour? your cronies. So I think those are a few areas where we've seen um, corruption most, most clearly in the pandemic. I hope you've enjoyed these snippets um, from some of the most interesting conversations we've had over the last year on the podcast and look forward to the next episode in this kind of mini series of two best of episodes um, that will be out in the next few weeks. Um, Coming up on the podcast, we've got some really interesting interviews lined up. Up into the new year, we're going to have interviews on um, vaccines and food poverty. And we're also going to return to exploring the politics of my local borough in London, which is Ealing, um, as all the local parties start ramping up and campaigning for, or continue campaigning for, more accurately, the local elections in May there next year. So thank you, and uh, thank you for listening to this episode. <laughs>